Hey guys, so we're sending another episode your way this week with some much-deserved celebration for a really good friend of the Atlanta Foodcast, and that's none other than Jarrett Steber of Eat Me, Speak Me, and soon-to-open Little Bear. Jarrett and a small team have been running this pop-up out of a few locations on the east side of town for over six years now, and their last service is this Saturday, June 29th at SOS Tiki Bar in Decatur. And Jarrett has done so much for Atlanta and has created incredible menus that many of us have enjoyed at Eat Me Speak Me over the years. So we're re-airing Jarrett's episode from last season in honor of his pop-up and in total anticipation of Little Bear. Cannot wait. So here's to you, Jarrett. Thank you for everything, and we'll see you in Summerhill very, very soon. Oh, and uh, stick around to the very end here, and uh, there's a quick announcement that you won't want to miss. Anyways, on with the show. Yeah, even though we're not going to do like the cheesy intro, it is pretty badass that we're sitting here at SOS. This is great. Yeah, yeah, this is the best time. Yeah, for sure, because there's not a bajillion people here who are just yeah. in the way. Yeah, which, which is, is nice. nice. Yeah. So, but Jared Steber, and I love that you emailed me and said like, "Hey, just so you know, this is how you pronounce my last name." And luckily, I was gonna, I was Happens gonna email a lot. you. Yeah, I was gonna email you back and actually tell you the story. Like, I've actually had to re- like correct people a few times just on pronunciation, like. My my last name is four letters, but some people just seem to just think that it. they just might think it's pronounced Geats for whatever reason. I'm like, you know what? We're just never really. We're not, yeah, we're not supposed to be friends. That doesn't even really make sense. I can understand mine a little more. Yeah, but. yeah, I know. I'm gonna move the mic a little bit closer to you. Yeah, yeah there you go. But uh, but yeah, it happens. You know, it's super annoying. But but yeah, man, I'm really excited to to have you on the show, man. This is great. I mean, again, like just. You know, talking about, you know, so much of what you've been doing in Atlanta with food, eat me, speak me, you know, throwing it back to being at Gato and living in Candler Park myself for for many years. You know, that's just a really it's a really, really special place. Yeah, it's a great incubator. Yeah. So it's um, but it's great to catch up with you, man. Like this is this is really an honor. So thanks for thanks for being on the show. But um, but before we get into, you know, a lot of, you know, what you're doing today and and everything, I want to actually get to know you just a little bit. So I want to throw it back. And one of the one of the first questions I have for you and I ask every one of the guests on my show is I want to know who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she you know it's funny because we growing up we really didn't have a lot of home cooking time um, I didn't come from a family that cooked a lot we didn't even really eat dinner together very often uh, my dad was a, a transplant surgeon um, so he worked crazy hours um, my sister and I had enough years apart where we weren't in the same grade so she would have different after school stuff i would have sports or whatever i was doing um and my mom was doing her thing she was a a semi-working mom too um worked mostly from home but did things so it wasn't really uh dinner time when we got home it was kind of fend for yourself time so it it just sort of materialized more from tv than anything honestly from watching emerald live and some shows like that yeah um I was playing music in in high school, kind of late junior high. I just started to get into it. Uh, Emerald Live stood out because he had that awesome band that would yeah. kind of do the commercials in and out of the show. And Emerald was, was just this crazy, energetic dude. And it was something else, man. I, I think yeah. I, I had someone on the show recently that uh, that we were chatting about Emerald. Uh, it was Dale DeSena from uh, Taste of Atlanta, and we were talking about Emerald, and like there was just nothing like it. It just made yeah. cooking like because I grew up watching like Great Chefs of the West, you know, and it was just. The guy very rarely would even speak English because he was a French 
yeah. you know, chef classically yeah. trained, but then Emerald just like brought it down to like pedestrian level with the whole like bam thing. Yeah. And, and even beyond all the gimmicks, he was just so enthusiastic about stuff. Yeah. You know, he would made have, you want to cook. Yeah. There's one episode I remember in particular, he was using lovage or lovage, depending how you say it. Uh, the celery family kind of derivative. Um, and he was like, lovage and the crowd all kind of hesitates lovage and like got them to start saying it along with him and he's like shh don't tell them they'll all be doing it this whole shtick i was like what is this guy doing yeah but um, yeah so i started watching that and i would go in the kitchen and cook whatever can pasta sauce we had and throw a bunch of random stuff into it and make dinner for myself and my parents and just kind of be like oh threw some stuff together and that was kind of what got the bug in my ear. I was 15. I was thinking about cooking um, after watching those shows and then read Kitchen Confidential and was like, you know, I should probably just go and see if I can get a job somewhere. And that was pretty much it. Never looked back. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? Uh, my parents were kind of like Sandy Springs, Buckhead, Cusp area. Mm-hmm. Uh, technically Sandy Springs, but kind of off Roswell Road, closer to Buckhead. Um, but my dad worked at Emory, so on on weekends <coughs> we would go to um, we would go to Alon's in Morningside. Yeah, and it was sort of like a you know kind of tradition. My sister and I would go with him. He'd make rounds. We would prank people in the hospital, like we probably shouldn't have been doing. But <laughs> you know, just like the doctor's kids running around messing with the nurses, and we would take you know my dad's name, write it on the whiteboard with all the patients' laps and stuff for the. <laughs> charts and we're like dr steber barely made two laps today and you know oh we're just a terror but um then we go awesome. to alon's uh, afterwards and we would get you know croissants and whatever yeah so i i went up and asked alon if i could shadow their chef and he kind of knew us from coming in a lot and was like yeah you know why not so Started following around the chef who at the time, I think it was Robert Phelan, who's now like weird stag yeah. and all that stuff. Probably doesn't even remember me. I was 15. He was there <laughs> for a couple weeks and then somebody else with the chef. Um, but yeah, I just went and prepped food, um, you know, two days a week on the weekends and learned how to do bigger batching of stuff. And that was pretty much, pretty much it. They just kept putting me on the schedule and kept putting me on the schedule. And at the end of the summer, Alon gave me some cash and was like, thanks for all the help this summer. Uh, you want to keep working once school starts? I was like, yeah, sure. And once I turned 16, filled out the paperwork, and that was pretty much it. Oh, man. So yeah. were you baking as well at a lot? No, I wasn't doing baking. We were just doing, like, that prepared food yeah. kind of to-go section. Yeah, that's such um, a huge part. But the baking part. was incredible there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, Being like, there's... Being around the pastry was awesome. And there's so many aspects to that business. I mean, it, whether you go to Morningside or Dunwoody, I mean, yeah. there's... It, it's just such an operation. And you yeah. can see everything happening, too. That was uh, something I liked about it. And I've always liked open kitchens yeah. ever since then because of that I, that's my well, probably my biggest grievance about being here at sos now is not having the open kitchen yeah. i really miss that yeah um yeah it was great i mean it used to be like yeah i know how to cook a piece of chicken pretty well as a you know 15 year old who thinks you know everything <laughs> but do you know how to you know grill off a couple cases at a time for the display case and have them all be good and just learning how to do kind of bigger batches of stuff it's I don't really like volume now. It's not my style to be in high volume places, um, but it was cool to learn how to knock out volume prep at a really yeah. early age. And that's yeah. you know, been a valuable tool since. Yeah. I actually caught up with the lawn not too long ago, earlier this summer. And, you know, he, he talked about, you know, how someone, 
you know, having to learn how to work accurately and quickly, like that's almost like the value of someone in your kitchen is like, I need you to be here and you might be really skilled. You know, you might have like the ability to create some amazing food, but I need you to work fast because like Alon's business, I mean, it's about, you know, it's not even about like just quote unquote turnover. It's like, I need you to get in and out. Cause I need to serve like the, th- that line at any time, like the 45 yeah. to 90 people. Yeah. You got to clear through it. Yeah. So his, uh, man, his, his team, like they're just, you know, they've got to hoof it every single day, but man, that's amazing that that's where you got a lot of your start. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I worked pretty much my whole junior year of high school. I was, I was working, you know, everyone else would do stuff on the weekends and I would go and work 10 or 12 hour shifts prepping on Saturday and Sunday. And I loved it, man. So, yeah. Yeah. So you were like the one of your friends that was working in the restaurant industry because you loved it. Yeah. Not, not because you felt obligated to yeah, like, I mean, oh, it was, I need to get it was a car. before I was even legally old enough to do it. You know, when I started, <laughs> Isn't that always it was, how it yeah. goes though. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, it was a great job. It was fun. And for me, you know, I was living with my parents, obviously as a high school kid. So making any sort of money, it was like whatever minimum wage was back then, six fifty or seven bucks an hour or something like that. And it was awesome. Just like, whoa, look at this money. I spent all of it on music equipment. Right. I was the Jewish kid with shoulder length hair who went to a Christian <laughs> prep school. So I played rock music. You know, my band wrote all of our own music in high school. And yeah. then we'd played places like Smith's old bar and stuff that we were too young to be playing, but they let us anyway. And so it was, I was never kind of the normal kid for the route that I grew up in, I suppose. (laughs) That's good. That's just, that's what makes you like even more of a, of a human rather than anybody else. Exactly. You know, never wanted to be a robot. Uh, (laughs) What were you playing? What instrument? Uh, guitar is what I started with. And you know, since if it has strings and frets, yeah, you can play it and, play drums and keys and yeah like that we'll find a you bit. a yeah we'll find you a lute to yeah, play there you go something like that something, yeah. <laughs> something really obscure <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> oh man but that's cool that you're you're an atlanta native man you're yeah, yeah I, I mean i was born in pittsburgh but i've been uh, here okay. since i was three yeah. so oh, that's that makes, yeah. as atlantan yeah. as it gets pretty yeah. much yeah. i know i was i was technically born in what well, technically i was born <laughs> in technically te- born. technically technically but no, i was born in kansas and then we moved to florida when i was five so yeah. I don't really tell people like that's like the part of the story like you've got to really care. It's yeah. almost like you're showing people your wedding pictures. Like I mean, how much do you actually want to like hear this and yeah, like talk yeah, to yeah, this? You yeah, know, exactly. but it's like yeah, I was actually born in Kansas. They're like get out. And you're like yeah, I don't remember that yeah, much. Yeah, I did yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very quick. <laughs> it's just <laughs> Took funny your advice before yeah. I even heard it. Yeah, it's funny when you get into get into that part of people's story. It's like you know how how deep are we actually going to go here? Yeah, but, but yeah, man, it's cool. I keep finding all these people like to to be on the show who are working you know, in a restaurant or they own a business and they're like, yeah, I actually grew up in, you know, Morningside or grew up in Decatur. I got Drew McBath from Banner Butter. Amazing, yeah. amazing butter. And he grew up in Decatur and like, we had the most amazing conversation about like, yeah, Decatur back in like the eighties and nineties yeah, and back in those days. Yeah. He's like, man, you would drive down Ponce and like, you know, the late eighties and like, you just, you didn't want to like get a flat tire. You didn't want to be there. Yep. You know? <laughs> yeah. Things, things are very different. Yeah, I know. A it's, lot of neighbors. I mean, my wife and I live in Inman park. It's like, you know, even, 10, 15 years ago, it was a very different place than it sure. is now where houses are all million dollars and up. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. It's really funny when you, when you start walking around and you're like, yeah, hey, I live in a nice apartment, but that house that towers over you on yeah. the bell line, you're like, man, 
can't afford that. But I know, even geez. though the building's made out of balsa wood and got put up in <laughs> three months of construction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's actually holding that together? You know, which yeah. is really funny. But, I don't know. but man, that's super cool that you got, it's such a, it's a, it's such a young age, you know? I mean, like so many people, especially nowadays, I don't know what like, you know, after our generation, what kids are doing. I don't know if it's actually cool to work at like Chick-fil-A or Publix, but yeah. you know, like and that's you, what a lot of cooks who I've worked with. I mean, even Elliot Moss from Bucks and Hall mm-hmm. in Asheville, who we were just talking about before recording yeah. started. I mean, he is a guy who started at Chick-fil-A and, yeah. you know. Uh, the guy who was my sous chef for over two something years of Eat Me, Speak Me, Jacob Armando, who's mm-hmm. at Watchman's now. He was, um, you know, worked at Chick-fil-A as one of his first jobs. It's, yeah. You know, it's kind of a, it, you either get the bug or you don't a little bit when you're young. You work in yeah. places like that and you're kind of like, oh, this is cool. I should, I should go work somewhere where I can learn some more like technique or different style of food yeah. now that I've worked at this one place. Or you're just like, nah, this is for the birds. I'm going to go to college and get a degree that I can do yeah. something else that isn't what that degree is for when yeah. I graduate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool though. I mean, you know, you can, you can learn so much about how to actually handle food. I mean, in any situation, I mean, like it's, it's all a matter of like really how you choose to apply that knowledge. But you know, there's so many people that, you know, their, their first instances of working in food are in fast food, you know, or yeah. even something that's even just, you know, remotely, related you know a lot of people ended up working in catering or i worked front of the house before i ever made it to the back of the house and yeah. i just love hearing that you know it's just it's a really cool part of people's stories but um but man so you you've got i mean your your history of working in in the restaurant world here in atlanta continued uh yep. well well beyond the lawns and i mean just just to just to name a few just to name a few i know you've got i mean you were working with resurgence so i know you've got like restaurant eugene and holman and finch in your background and yep. You know, quite a bit. Um, you know, I know that you at Inquatrano as well has got a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty story. hard to be an Atlanta cook who worked anywhere pedigree, not either worked for Hugh Atchison, Annie, yeah. or, you know, Linton at some point. Yeah. I worked for all three, so I guess I got the trifecta. Yeah, the, the trifecta, the triple crown. Yeah, whatever you, know, you something want like to call that. it. It's amazing. Like, when people come to visit, you know, it's like you're probably going to end up, like, if you're going, like, depending on how you're trying to map out your evening, you're going to end up at, like, restaurant eugene or you know bacchanalia if you're you know going for like yeah you know, going for the Baller gusto meal. yeah and then uh and the abattoir was like you know, i mean that was another yeah, I just, oh man just super r.i.p cool. yeah <laughs> but, it's weird going back to marcel for I me mean, i've been once or twice or something just to it's so strange to go back in that room that i spent you know over a year in working yeah. when it was abattoir and she's like oh yeah I know it's Same crazy, room, man. Huh? But yeah, like walk me through a little bit of that. Cause like, I mean, you're talking about like, you know, Hugh Atchison or, you know, Catrano or, you know, Resurgence, you know, like with Linton and yeah. Gina, like, so tell me you're, you're working at Alon's and then through high school. Yeah. So what, what's the next step so for you from there? Basically after Alon's my senior year of high school, um, you know, with thinking about colleges and all the other stuff that kind of comes along with it, I was trying to push to see if my band could go anywhere. So I, I took a step back from working um, and just kind of staged more than anything. Um, so I, I worked at Joel, which is now Local 3, um, back when it was still Joel for a couple of weeks. And that was crazy. I mean, that kitchen build, that was just insane. That's still, to this day, the most frivolous and fancy kitchen I've ever set foot in. Oh, yeah. Um, it was crazy. I mean, yeah. I remember one day he was like, oh, you need to go help the guy who's portioning steak or something he's in the walk-in so i go in the walk-in 
and there's nobody in there. And then there's a door in the back of the walk-in. So I go in there and it's another walk-in. That's where the meat is. The guy's <laughs> in the meat walk-in that has a prep table in it, portioning meat in the cold. And I was like, what is happening? But, yeah. So yeah, I did that for a little bit. I worked with, um, at five seasons when it first opened the one in the Prada shopping center, Sandy Springs. Yeah. Um, so I did a little, you know, shifts here and there, different places. Um, but I, I went to UNC Asheville for orientation weekend when I graduated, realized I wasn't going to do anything. I got a degree in, um, came home. My parents were like, that's fine. You can cook, you can play music, but you know, maybe get a degree, at least go to culinary school. So I went and got a bogus bachelor of culinary science or whatever it was from Lake Cordon Bleu, which is now defunct right. in all North American locations. So right. I don't know what sort of value the, <laughs> the piece of paper with a couple typos on it has got, anymore, but you got history, man. Yeah. History, yeah. You're, you're part of history That's and it's, right. and now it is history. So yeah, so that was that. But yeah, while I was in culinary school, I worked at Pervita with Hector Santiago nice. uh, for a while. Um, basically me and couple guys who worked the line but one of them was colin miles who owns uh, a hot dog company um that's popular i guess around town now um pigman's pigman goods yeah so um yeah there's uh that was a cool step i liked working there a lot hector was extremely detail oriented um that I was awesome him. yeah he was like i mean i would have to chiffonade herbs and then he'd look at it and it's not thin enough dude again chiffonade <laughs> not thin enough dude it gets to the point where it's like my knife has a mass of its own like i cannot go thinner than the knife will allow yeah he's like thinner thinner you know so yeah it was great to work for a guy like that but i was doing a lot of stuff in school i was in a lot of the different extracurricular programs and trying to get involved plus the rigors of the, the workload. So I only worked there during culinary school for about six months or seven months or something. And then waited till I graduated, did the externship at restaurant Eugene. Um, and they just opened Holman and Finch and needed help there. They had a, a pretty big turnover in the first couple months. So I transferred over to Holman and Finch and was there for maybe a year and a half or so. Um, I was working for at the beginning, some different folks, but then Ryan Smith now of staple house fame and, uh, he was working at Bacchanalia in the mornings um, and then coming to Empire and doing charcuterie, or maybe it's the other way, doing charcuterie at, um, not Empire, sorry, at uh, Holman and Finch in yeah. the mornings and then going to Bacchanalia working the line. Um, but he was just like so awesome at what he did. He was so inspiring. Uh, and then he eventually became chef de cuisine of both Eugene and Holman and Finch. And it was great working with him, working around him, but he was stretched so thin running those two places together. I felt sure. like I wasn't getting a lot of time to really like learn under him like I was at the beginning. So I, um, Abattoir just opened and I didn't leave Holman and Finch for a while because I didn't think there was anywhere doing more interesting food than what H&F was doing at the beginning. Everything made in-house, all the organ meat cookery, the local vegetables. It was such a unique thing. The charcuterie program in particular is so awesome. Um, so then when Abattoir opened, they were doing some fairly progressive food by Atlanta standards. So I was yeah. like, you know, maybe I'll go over there and, Went and worked at Abattoir for a year uh, with Josh Hopkins, and um, it was a tough year. That was hard. There was a lot of a lot of prep rigor involved. There was no AM prep crew, so you know all your station work. You didn't have any help. Yeah, you had to do everything. So I mean, working guard there was the salad station or pantry, whatever you want to call it would involve, you know, butchering your own meat for the steak tartare and the oh beef jerky, confiting your own duck to shred for a salad that just was garnished with duck confit and cracklins and 
making your own riette and jarring it, making your liver mousse and jarring it, peeling and deveining your own shrimp for pickled shrimp, making all the corps bouillon every single time you put shrimp from scratch, had to do it fresh corps bouillon, yeah. all this. It was crazy. I mean, it was just so much prep. Yeah. And that, see, that's the side of dining that, you know, I, I, you know, I've, I've only, I've only worked in a handful of kitchens in, in my life. And, you know, when you start talking about like how much goes into just getting open for service yeah. in an evening, especially when it's, it's a crazy. small team, cause there's just not a lot of space, man. Yeah. yeah. I, oftentimes, I mean, the kitchen is really only big enough for like four people, but you cram seven in there, Yeah, you know, and, or even if you're lucky enough to have that, that size of a yeah. team. Like, and I mean, Josh was a beast. He did a ton of prep, you know, as much as he could in his sous chefs. He would stay till, I don't know, God knows, three, four in the morning Jeez. after service prepping. And he'd always be there before you got in. I mean, I used to come in at 10 or 11 in the morning. My shift wouldn't start till 3.30. There's just no way to be set up otherwise, you know. Yeah. This is a different age. These cooks nowadays don't have to go through this kind of stuff anymore, thankfully. But right. <laughs> that's sort of what people from my generation and the ones before us went through. Was that, you know, you're just expected to work off the clock for hours and hours and hours. Because if you're, if you don't, you're not set up. And then we're going to yell at you and then fire you. Yeah. So, I mean, Josh took me aside and in the walk-in one night after service. Like, we like you. You're a good kid. But you're just not keeping up. Like, you got basically like a couple shifts to get your get your shit together oh can i say shit on you can side? totally okay. say shit you can yeah. say shit and other other curse words fantastic yeah good so taste. We'll, he was we'll like, get... yeah just get your shit together yeah. and you won't get fired if you do and you will at the end of the week if you don't and i was like okay gut check like figure it out nice so yeah i mean it was definitely one of those places and i mean he, before that when i worked at eugene david bees of ticonderoga club he was yeah. the chef de cuisine there still to this day the only guy to ever kick me off a station oh wow yeah crazy little like shithead 18 year old me he put me on hot apps which did not only the proteins but the vegetable set for their proteins for for the hot apps yeah you had two burners to use which were like the rocket powered high btu burners for like boiling stocks yeah so they went from like zero to burnt and nothing really in between (laughs) and then you had one eye you could borrow from the saute cook that was in the back of the burner range and you know of course the saute guys just taking up everything and not letting you use it anyway yeah yeah i I burned a couple orders of foie in a row i had foie sweetbreads all this expensive stuff on the station it was on saturday and the rush started coming in and i went down like a sack of bricks and he kicked me off the station thankfully it's never happened since but went from working for chefs like you know doing stuff like that and working for josh who's very demanding it's yeah makes you stronger as a cook even though it kind of sucks to go through at the time no but man what a way to learn yeah like it's uh yeah it's hard i mean i i remember having a conversation pretty recently you know just about like what what the value of of hard work and actually learning the hard way and failure you know yeah. of actually getting getting kicked off a station getting yeah. getting fired from a you job you learn a lot more from that than you well, do from not getting kicked off a station even if you probably should yeah and and it would worry me for someone who's looking to get into the industry and like working for someone you know, who's just hard enough to, to care and yeah. want you to progress instead of just saying like, you suck, get out of my kitchen yeah. or like you burned, you know, something that I now had to pay for and I can't sell. But you know, for someone to actually pick themselves up by their bootstraps and say like, I failed and do I still want to keep doing this? Yeah. Like that, that's, shot. yeah, that's the thing that, you know, I think that's the test of someone like you can actually fail and still have the passion to get up and do it more. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, man, so so you, you're well into, I mean, establishing, you know, just, just a career of like, you know, you're, you're in, yeah. you know, the, the restaurant world here in Atlanta. So, so talk to me about, you know, what, 
what was like the place that eat me speak me started like showing up in in your mind like in your story like how long until like this came about well, after abattoir um ryan smith took over empire state south um and I, I gave a little time for him to kind of get his systems in place and change things around but i wanted to go back and work for him again so i i spent two and a half years with him at empire state south sort of doing at the beginning what he was doing at Holman and Finch, doing charcuterie and butchery. And it extended into a lot more over the course of time there. By the end, I was pretty burnt out and wasn't sure if I wanted to keep cooking. And it was, it was a hard kitchen to work in because, you know, Brian Smith's food is what it is. It's extremely technical, beautiful food. But we were doing sometimes 350 covers on Saturday nights there. And it's crazy to do that kind of volume with that type of food. And it was really running a lot of us ragged. And that was an incredible team to be a part of. And these guys like Jeff Wall, who's the opening chef at Kimball House. He's now opening a restaurant in California. Uh, this guy, Don Trimble, he has a, a sort of like a supper club type of private kitchen thing in Hong Kong that he runs. This other guy, Eric Pomering owns a food truck down in Florida after having opened a restaurant before that. There's, you know, Dwayne Curlers who was the chef of octopus bar for a long time. Parnas worked there. Heard of him. Yeah. I heard of that guy. Sounds like a nice guy. So, I mean, there was pretty much Jason Zygmunt. He's now running the tree house in Nashville was the chef at five and 10 for a while before that. Uh, this guy, Micah and his wife, Katie opened the butcher baker and Marietta. It's like insane what what came out of that place. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And it's, and it's amazing too. Like, you know, when you start talking about the, you know, kind of quote unquote family tree, it's amazing. Just mapping out like, I mean that one restaurant at that one time at like empire state South during those years under Ryan Smith, like that was the breeding grounds. Yeah. What years were you there? Uh, 2000, like 2010 or 11 or something until 2013. Gotcha. Somewhere in that range. Yeah. I think uh, that was probably around the first time that I ever ate at Empire State. And the, the reason I actually ended up at Empire State South, we moved from North Carolina down to Atlanta. Yeah. And everyone that, that I knew spoke so highly of the coffee program. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they're like, go eat for sure. But yeah, the coffee yeah, was yeah. great. Go in the morning for breakfast and don't miss coffee yeah and then come back either for lunch or dinner you know and you're going to be taken care of but that yeah. was that was even before i knew to like look into the history of who ryan smith is yeah you know? exactly and I that's something that a, he yeah. did really well he Atchison who owned it is that he's always been great at not only hiring good people to work for him but kind of like showing that they're the ones running it. There's a lot of chefs who just keep their name on like, I'm the executive chef of all of these restaurants and it's <laughs> yeah. so bogus. You right. Know? Right. And he was great about just being like, yeah, Ryan Smith is a chef here and you know, his food's great. Right. Go support him. Like he was such a great proprietor and a boss in that sense. He's the most down to earth guy for how famous he is. Yeah. So you know, that was a really cool thing about working there was seeing, the way a really successful owner and pretty famous guy at this point could still handle a staff yeah. and, and delegate the right way. And, but yeah, I mean, it was a great place to work. It was just exhausting by the end. Um, yeah, that was where stuff with Elliot Moss sort of came into play. I'd eaten at the Admiral a few times, with some friends in Nashville, still a great restaurant. Yeah. By still the way. a great restaurant. I'd eaten when Elliot was the chef and loved it. And I just sent him an email and was like, Hey, I'm burning out here. And, I want to do something different. Do you guys need a charcuterie butcher by any chance? And he emailed back almost immediately like, Hey, here's my number. Give me a call. We called and like, yeah, we're opening this place called Ben's tune up. 
Uh, it's going to be like Japanese ramen, izakaya kind of stuff, brew our own sake, but we're going to do everything in-house. And then I want to open this barbecue place called Buxton Hall. That's the second project we want to do. And everything's going to be in-house again there too. So the butchery, curing meat, all that stuff. And so he hired me right away without question pretty much. And um, so I was going to move to Asheville and work with him. Um, but at the same time, I had already put in my notice at Empire, worked it out. Uh, the restaurants in Asheville, like all restaurants, were delayed in opening. And in the meantime, the guys who used to own Steady Hand Poor House, one of the owners now owns Spiller Park, um, Dale Donche. Yeah. Uh, but there were a few of the guys they opened, or <coughs> owned, sorry, at the time, owned uh, Steady Hand Poor House. They were subletting from uh, Everybody's Pizza. And when the guy who sold everybody's, their lease in turn made, you know, disappeared. So they had to find a new location. So they started doing a breakfast and lunch pop-up at the Iberian Pig called Desayuno. That was a coffee pop-up. And they were like, hey, why don't you come do lunch food with us while you're waiting to move? I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So I started hmm. doing lunch food with them. Uh, and then after a month, the agreement kind of, you know, ran out. And they moved to Candler Park Market. And we're going to use the deli counter to do like a nighttime coffee thing and feature the food a little more. I couldn't figure out what to name it. One of the guys was like, let's just call it Eat Me because it's about the food. You know, I was like, all right, fine. Why not? So that started at Candler Park Market and um, they couldn't get like a espresso machine hooked up there. The electricity wasn't powerful enough and you know modern enough really right so the coffee stuff was kind of a byproduct and it became more about the food and they were doing some batched iced coffee type of drinks or whatever i don't even remember at this point but i was doing that uh i want to say monday and tuesday nights and then driving to Asheville on wednesday maybe working wednesday night and then working thursday friday saturday driving back to atlanta Good stopping God. in athens on the way to pick up stuff from woodland gardens one of the farms that we buy from mm-hmm. menu planning prepping sunday opening up monday and after about a month and a half of working seven days a week and driving 500 miles a week I was yeah like, you know this really isn't making sense. So, yeah. you know, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, my family, they were all here. The farms I know and have connections to, friends, everything was here. I was like, yeah, I should just see if I can turn Eat Me, Speak Me into a, I guess at the time, just Eat Me into more of a full-time thing. So we moved it to five nights a week. The Steady Hand guys eventually just kind of ran out of momentum and funding and, you know, withdrew from it. And I just kept running it and we did a speakeasy one night a week at my graphic design guy's office, which used to be right around the corner in, in Candler Park yeah. from the market um, off of Glendale. Mm-hmm. So we did that on Thursdays. That night was called Eat Me, Speak Me. The customers would come in, we'd slip them a piece of paper with the address, and they could walk over and get a drink. They couldn't even BYO at the market because uh, of the, re- yeah, the yeah, retail yeah. Exactly. alcohol yeah. laws. Um, so yeah, we started doing that. Those nights were Eat Me, Speak Me, and then people were confused. What's Eat Me? What's Eat Me, Speak Me? It was a tough fit too at the time you know five years ago now pop-ups are still very infantile in atlanta people didn't really know what they were what to expect everyone just assumed that i was serving the deli food later in the day so i was like (laughs) oh i want to get a mean green or whatever sandwich i was like cool don't have it but i got some like blood sausage on the panini (laughs) press if you want some it's cooking everything off the panini press (laughs) in a tabletop fryer yeah so it was oh Uh, logistically tough in a lot of ways we just turned the whole thing into eat me speak me one set of branding still ran the speakeasy for a little while and just kind of struggled to make it work um 
but at the time Arigato was going on outside of uh, inside of Gato, the ramen pop-up. Yeah. Um, so Alan, who was running that invited me to just come be his sort of support cook on those nights and he'd back me up and I could do eat me, speak me a few nights. So we were doing lunch service out of the general Muir's deli counter a few days a, w- a week and then dinner service a couple days a week at Gato and, it was just easier to work out a gato. It had the history of the Bataan Supper Clubs and Arigato and all these pop-ups. So people expected it. There was kind of a built-in customer base that wanted to experience the pop-ups. We were busier. We we're actually making money there instead of bleeding it out like we had been before that at other locations. So we just stuck with gato kind of full-time. And then when Arigato ended, we switched to doing Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. And that was really all we could do because it was just so small and there's such a limited amount of refrigerated storage that we just couldn't keep more product in to do more nights of service. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really fun. I mean, again, you know, like living in Candler Park and moving there, I believe in the summer, summer of 2013, you know, and, uh, you very quickly end up at Gato if you live in, in yeah. the neighborhood, you yeah. know, you're like, it's either going to be for breakfast and it's always great. You always smelled like pancakes for the rest of the day. I was like, man, yeah. I love this place. Old baking grease. Yeah, it was great. But I was just like, man, there's so much like, I just want to know the story of like that flat top. It's probably amazing. But, um, but man, like we would end up at, at Gato Arigato and like, that was, that was just like the fun place to like take people like, okay, I know that you've never had like takoyaki or like yeah. ramen, even, yeah. you know, or okonomiyaki. And like, this is just going to blow your mind. Like this is a breakfast place during the day. Yeah. And then you get like Japanese food in the evening. Yeah. I mean, it was really the coolest thing Atlanta oh. had to offer to, and still to a certain extent is when Emi Speak Me was there and yeah. now when Talat's there and, and it's, it's, it's just it's like a great incubator. Yeah. Right? You talk, you talk about an incubator and like, and then when you, were, I mean, I, I was going to, I think I told you this on the phone. We talked like a few weeks ago, but like, I mean, I remember seeing you like when we would go to eat me, speak me like on the weekends, like we, again, it was just a fun place. Like, Hey, we're going to take you guys to this amazing place. Yeah. Like what's the restaurant? Like, well, it's, you got to kind of look at it this way. Like you, you, it's in here, but you're going to find both. If you look on so online, mystifying yeah. people. Like, what is a pop-up? It's yeah. like, well, you walk in, you look yeah. at a menu, you order some things, we cook them for you. Yeah. You eat them <laughs> and you pay us and yeah. you leave. Yeah. So it's, pretty much just like a restaurant yeah and it was it was so fun like actually taking people into candler park market like okay we're gonna buy like pick out whatever wine you want to drink just just find something you want to drink you know or beer or whatever and then we're gonna walk it right over here wait outside for them to be ready to let us in and then it was amazing watching people's just like their their heads were spinning they're like i don't yeah i know this is so much fun though yeah Yeah. they always had this great uh champagne that paired really well with our food over there too it's from milwaukee nice called high life yeah i think i've heard of it yeah that was personally my favorite yeah and always funny to see all the like rich bougie people coming down from whatever suburbs Mm -hmm. what do you recommend we get with your food (laughs) like honestly (laughs) there's this food is all over the place stylistically, yeah. so you're probably best with like a high life or some yeah. cheap Spanish white wine or something. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, if, if you've never had Miller High Life, like it's um in the glass bottle. That's yeah, the exactly. key. It's like oh. a Mexi Coke oh, versus the yeah. different stuff. Big time. And honestly, like I don't know. Maybe it needs to be drinking out of a paper bag. You know, it just yeah. depends. Or if you're actually pouring it into a glass from a paper bag, it's yeah. almost like you're. I got to open this up and let it breathe for just yeah. Minutes. It's, it's transcendent. Yeah. You yeah. want to get that terroir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm gonna reach out collared. to them. <laughs> reach out to them for a sponsorship. Yeah. Oh, oh my man. God. That, but, now that would be the dream. Yeah. Right? If I could get sponsored by High Life. Mm-hmm. 
You don't even have to pay me. If you guys like, are listening. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they will. Who knows? But but that's a that's a perfect segue, man. So I mean again, like I what <laughs> you said like menus all over the place. Like yeah. I I think it's fun. But tell me about how you so even between like, you know, moving from, you know, Gato over to SOS, which I want to talk about a little bit in a minute, but just talk about like how you develop the menu for yeah. Eat Me Speak Me. Well, we we I don't I always say we and then people make fun of me it's because, you. yeah I guess so I don't know I mean it's me <laughs> and my one employee so yeah. that's good shout out to the one employee shout out to Trevor go what's Trevor what's up Birdman but um yeah we we do things differently at Eat Me Speak Me because of the way that we source so everything aside from salt and some pantry items um, oil that kind of stuff is local. Um, and it's not just to be like, oh, we're farm to table or because like, you know, even commodity farms are farms. Everything's farm to table. Yeah. That's just some, you know, BS marketing scheme more than anything. Sure. But for us, it's about the, the seasonality, the locality, knowing who grows our product, having actual relationships. The only purveyor I use is Turnip Truck, which isn't really a purveyor like people would normally think of. Yeah. They're an organization that's based out of Atlanta that, you know, a lot of different farms from the area just drop off to them because right. it's a little easier and then they can distribute from there. And they yeah. have some commodity stuff too, but yeah. we use them for local dairy and things that are a little harder to source. You know, I only need a couple gallons of stuff in a week. I don't need a $250 order from someone yeah. of milk. That's yeah. all going to go bad. Um, but everything else is, is small local farms. They deliver, you know, once a week. We get availabilities, they send out, we place an order, and then when I menu plan, usually on Tuesdays before we open on Wednesday, we kind of look at you know what we had on the menu previously. Do we still have the stuff to make a certain dish? Do we still have sauces left over from it? What do we need to reuse and keep the same? But what do we need to change? And it's sort of like putting together pieces of a puzzle from there. It's just like, what, what do I do with all these things that we ordered that are coming in where you can divide them up so each dish has color, has balance of texture, a little balance of flavor um, and then what can we use from our pantry or you know whatever else to kind of embellish and be creative because I do want to try to have some unusual flavor combinations and I'm not really into the modernist shit and tweezer plating and all that I'm very old school <laughs> and mentality I don't get it with all that yeah. stuff it's it's fine you know it's good to have that experience sometimes as, and good, but yeah as Steven Satterfield would say he's like just use your paws yeah just use your paws that was yeah. one of my favorite parts in his, in his <laughs> I love that yeah. I was like oh I want yeah, to use that just use your paws just they're like they're like tweezers but easier to use yeah so yeah. but yeah I mean that's that's the approach basically is yeah. like how do we stay creative without turning it into stuff that doesn't even resemble food and at the end of the day, like it just has to taste delicious. That's the single most important thing beyond technique, beyond creativity, beyond all this other stuff. The most important thing is the ability to coax flavor out of whatever you're working with. So how do we take this food that's extremely beautiful when it comes in the doors, manipulate it and maintain the beauty that it originally had when it came in, but in a different new way? Um, so that's the approach. It's, it's not, here's a dish I want to do. Let's order stuff. It's here's stuff. What dish do we do with this? I like uh, that. And then we just want it to be fun too. I mean, really do. I want the food to be fun. I want the experience to be casual. I want people to be comfortable. None of that like servers with their hands behind their backs, stuffy shit. None of that like drop a dish off and stay at the table for 10 minutes explaining it. <laughs> who, who cares? It's yeah. like, just let them dig into it. Like mm -hmm. there's a menu, they can reference it. They can ask you questions. The staff needs to know, but like, you know, don't talk these people to death. Just give them the food, give them good service, treat them well, make them feel like they're friends or family. 
and you know we we just want that atmosphere to be a start to finish thing when you walk through the front door you look at the menu you start reading it it's got dumb jokes all over it and stupid shit printed everywhere it's my favorite it's supposed to be fun yeah it's just like you know relax trust us we know what we're doing we pay a lot of attention to it i've worked my ass off prepping receiving things putting them away properly everything start to finish is important to us but we want you to have fun and relax and know that you know we got it so you can just sit here and enjoy yourselves i like that and yeah. can i top you off with some more miller high life yeah exactly yeah, yeah. like yeah just come in and relax but no i think that's that's actually a really fun thing to talk about is like the menus are uh i mean i gosh man i remember sitting at gato and like almost like obnoxiously laughing so yeah. hard just like i was like this this is such my humor I yeah love they're fun <laughs> it's so hilarious and yeah, yeah we had like a sort of breakthrough moment at one point at the beginning when you know pretty much every vegetable you get from local farmers is like a baby version of whatever you know you see like right. baby squash or baby fennel or whatever printed on menus and i was doing that at the beginning too just like oh baby fennel and i had one dish where I had written baby whatever like three times in a row because it was all baby things. And I was like, this is so so stupid. (laughs) So I just started calling it like fetal squash or whatever, you know, just dumb (laughs) things like that instead. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that's on the menu. And I don't even know where the little nicknames for each dish started too. There's like these old puns that reference things. I think it was just some joke between me and Alvin Deke who does our graphic design stuff from uh, Office of Brothers. Um, and uh, it just sort of kept happening. And now that's kind of like the hardest part of menu planning every week, honestly, <laughs> like you put the dishes together and then I sit there and try to think of like, wow, I've had chicken dishes on, uh, on menus for five years and I have to think of some different pun that involves chicken somehow. It's, that's the hardest part, yeah. honestly, at this point. Do you have any customers who've collected every menu you've done? No, but I do have some who have either collected menus or keep track of things mentally yeah. like oh this is my favorite stupid pun yeah. you've had yet kind of thing yeah that's but, fun man but yeah that's it's so cool that you've been doing that approach and I'm, i remember reading about you years ago and the way that someone put it and this was i mean i don't remember if it was creative loafing or or what but you know like that jared steber builds his menu on what he got from the farmer's market. Yeah. And I mean, again, like you talk about like the dopey stuff of like farm to table, whatever. That's just what people like to say because they make them feel yeah, smart. For sure. but, but I mean, it's amazing that the meal that you can prepare, like this is a hundred percent what I purchased from the farmer's market. Like today, you know, that's talk about like cooking in season. Like someone rested this from the earth with their bare hands and now yeah. I'm making it into a pasta dish. Yeah, and it's, it's the old Southern thing. If it if it grows together, it goes together. It's yeah. kind of old Southern colloquialism, I guess. But um, yeah, it definitely, I mean, it's definitely true. Yeah, Food tastes better when it's fresher. It's grown close to you. It's grown in soil from the area. I mean, everything about it. Just It's the way I like to cook. It keeps me creative because you're sort of limited. You know, you can't just order whatever you want. It's kind of nice to have some some limitations because i do find that often creativity comes out of necessity in a lot of ways so it's it's a fun way to keep me on my toes and always try to push a little to be creative and different and uh, i just can't imagine cooking any other way yeah i'm totally fine going and eating at whatever dive bar and you know i'm not like oh i don't eat anything that isn't local veggies it's not <laughs> i'm not that kind of guy yeah but that's what we do and yeah. me speak me and i i don't print farms names on the menu either at this point because you know i expect people to know everything is from a small local farm here yeah. if you want to know specifics we are happy to answer and tell you 
our website has a list of farms that we source from but on the menu itself it's like this is all small farm product so yeah you know i love the i love this the side of education that is maybe kind of dovetailing off of the farm to table whatever you want to call it fad movement but where it's it's now becoming you know i love seeing this from like peach dish where they're really trying to educate people on this is what is in season right now and now being the the range of months of really where the climate is Mm -hmm. a certain temperature and radiance and like this is how farms can produce these root vegetables right now therefore they're coming from farms and also therefore you should eat them yeah i love that like just maybe that's just what everyone needed all along it's like you know what this is what farms can grow right now and that's what you should eat and everyone's like oh you're right yeah people just get mystified by stuff and they have no idea what they're eating half the time too i'm sure that's something steven talked about Anybody listening wants to go back and listen to the Stephen Satterfield interview from the database of uh, previous interviews. He has some interesting stuff to say, um, but it's true. I mean, Americans kind of eat with their blinders on. It's like, I mean, I'm still shocked by it, but sometimes you meet people where it's like, what animal does pork come from? They don't even know it's a pig, you know? So it's it's a weird setting. You meet this like shrink wrap hunk of steak in a grocery store. It's not a living cow to anybody. And things like organic. Oh, is it organic? Everything you buy organic? It's like organic doesn't mean anything to me. It's uh, half the farms that we buy from are too small to pay for the certification. Like, yeah, they're organic, but they're not certified organic. It doesn't really matter to me. You can buy an organic tomato from Whole Foods in January. Doesn't mean that it's in season. And it could be, you know, grown by some dude in Guatemala having to work the fields for whatever 18 cents a day and having to like use the bathroom out in the fields because they don't have access to anything else and they get treated terribly and so i mean that's a constant argument that can be made i suppose behind the scenes and part of why you know people like oh you have so many vegetables are you vegetarian or is it a vegetarian restaurant is it vegan what do you think about that you know the way meat's raised and grown and how terrible it is it's like yeah this is a lot of commodity meat farming is terrible mm-hmm. terrible on the animals terrible for the environment uh but so is commodity vegetable farming and even organic vegetable farming from parts of the world that don't have the same sort of human rights that other places do so you know it's not just oh this chicken farm this is terrible it's like how about the south american central american you know produce farms that are doing this commodity stuff and mistreating the people who work there as well as the environment that's just as bad to me yeah so you know you should be concerned more about what grows around you and where the food comes from by locally you know who grew it where they grew it how they grew it how they slaughter if it's an animal i mean it it makes a big difference yeah big time yeah um Tell me a little bit about, you know, we, we talked a lot about just the, the time that you were at Gato, which was, I mm-hmm. mean, how many years? Almost two? So, yeah, a little over two, yeah. yeah. It was the longest place I ever worked in yeah. my career. <laughs> there, I was at Empire for two and a half years. I was at Gato for, I guess, almost three. Yeah. 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 But, uh, so tell me about, um, well, it's just funny. I know that we were talking about this before we hit record, but, you know, like, I remember sitting in this space when it was paper plane. Yeah. You know, like, we would go to Victory or Cakes and Ale, and this is where we would come. Like, we would continue eating, obviously, but sure. it's also just a great, like, you know, nightcap, and, but it's, it's cool. I mean, I love that, you know, now it's the SOS Tiki Bar. So, but talk to me about, like, where you transferred from Gato over to, over here. So the transition was... There were a number of reasons for it. But at the time, my wife and I were considering moving to San Francisco. Um, 
really love it there. My sister was living there for a while. We visited a few times and just fell in love with the area, despite all the rich white yuppies from the tech world trying their best <laughs> to ruin it. It still wasn't a deterrent. The nature, yeah. the restaurants, the bars, everything, just the vibe of the city. There's something kind of mystical in the air. Um, I, we, we were pretty much like, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's move. I'd been trying for years to raise funding for a restaurant unsuccessfully. Um, and it, it was just getting frustrating. I was like, you know, I don't know if Atlanta is where I should be cooking anymore. And I still struggle with that to a certain extent. I love the city. I've been here my whole life, but the food scene goes in these ebbs and flows. And right now specifically, it's just so big development money driven. It's all these huge mixed use developments, big restaurants, very different than the style that I want of a restaurant. Um, so a place like San Francisco or DC, you get those Brooklyn, whatever you get, those little like corner lot neighborhood joints, 20, 30 seats food. That's too good for how casual the place is. Like that's the type of restaurant I want to open. Yeah. And there's nothing like that here. And, and the spaces are hard to find that are that size, that feel, that aesthetic. Um, so, you know, that, that was all kind of factoring into why we wanted to move. Um, so I figured that moving to SOS, would be because of the extra space, um, specifically refrigerated space, and then the additional seating without it being huge would be a good way to kind of do more food where I could hire more staff and theoretically have it continue running if I moved. And it could be kind of a way to generate revenue and support myself while I search for funding in San Francisco and look for a space. Um, but we moved here. And it was a lot slower than it was at Gato and still is to a certain extent because of the, the trouble of sharing the space simultaneously. There's a lot of people who just come here to drink and they take mm -hmm. up seats and they're not interested in food. And so it's, you know, it's been kind of a struggle in that sense. Working here has been great and the relationships behind the scenes, the owners of Vic Brands are awesome, super supportive of me. Uh, they believe in what Eat Me Speak Me is. The staff that works here is great. We love working with them. But we have to share the space yeah. simultaneously, and it's yeah. it's a little tough. Um, at the time, we were getting kind of wet feet, myself specifically, about moving. Uh, and I was just kind of like, you know, we just moved two miles down to Cab Avenue, and we're totally dead. How am I going to move 5,000 miles away and expect to be busy doing a pop-up or opening a restaurant with no name recognition? So the plan changed quickly. and was like, you know, let's just hunker down here revisit the restaurant idea with a renewed energy, hope to find funding, hope to find a space that works for what I want and try to open here and get stable, open some things and, you know, figure stuff out down the road where we want to be to kind of like semi retire and live. Um, but yeah, so that was basically it. I mean, there's just more refrigerated space here and it made sense to expand because the way we source, like we can't just go to Buford Farmer's Market or DeKalb Farmer's Market or whatever. Those aren't real. I mean, it's a farmer's market in the sense of farms grew the veggies, but it's not sure. like a local yeah. farmer's market, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, we the way we source, we get stuff once a week and you got to just kind of like rain man it and hope that he ordered the right amount of product to <laughs> get through the week. Because when you run out, you run yeah. out and that's it. There's nothing else coming in. You can go restock it Saturday or Sunday mornings at some of the local farmer's markets, but there's this notion that people just go like walk through the markets on oh, the chef. I'm going to look at all this stuff and buy the things and then make a dish that night. And like, that's not how it works. 
you need to order stuff and know what you're getting so you can menu plan and game plan. And it also just screws over the farmers too if you do it that way because they're trying to sell all the stuff marked up retail and you're walking in, I want to buy 10 pounds of what you have wholesale price and prevent you from selling it retail to your customers. They don't like that very much. Yeah. <laughs> they work with you if you have pre-standing relationships, but you should know the boundaries of good taste and you should be working out these sort of side hustle deals where it's like, hey, I'm going to come by Saturday. Can you set aside stuff for me? Do you have it available? That kind of thing. But it's still logistically tough to do. Um, so we had gotten to a point at Gato where we were just busy the same amount every night, basically. And that was it. We couldn't expand. It's like, well, you know, not opening a restaurant anytime soon. Cause I'm still looking for more funding and it's, you know, whatever, eight, 10, 12 months away from when you get your funding in your space for the build out. So I was like, well, what do we do? We got to find somewhere else to grow and expand or at least attempt to. So that was part of the move here. You know, we got more seats, but not too many, ton more refrigerated space and a ton of equipment available to us that we didn't have before at Gato. And, um, it just sort of made sense on paper to come here and give it a shot and see if we could grow. Yeah. How long has it been? Uh, a little over a year now. Started yeah. a- April of last year. Nice. Yeah. Well, dude, I, I think it's great, man. I love that you've, you've carried the Emi Speak Me name, you know, and like, it's just yeah. been fun to follow. It's, it's crazy been- that it's survived for five years with no budget and resources and just going week to week. And it's, I never set out to do it either, you know, so that's part of why it's so crazy to me after all these years. And in some ways it's almost depressing to be like, I've been trying for so long to open my own restaurant unsuccessfully. Wow. That's a bummer. But then you think of the flip side and it's like, in the meantime, though, this crazy little pop-up has survived for five years, which most restaurants don't make it that long. You make it past nine months. Yeah. Man. So yeah. that's insane. And yeah. like, I'm so appreciative of our regular customers too. And we have the best regulars in the world who put up with all of our dumb shit and follow us around. And <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. But man, I, I think you've just got, you've just got the story that I think it makes it something so special for Atlanta, you know, and it's, it's one that I, I love to, you know, I mean, again, like just bringing people to Gato, you know, and you know, it's the, it's the kind of thing that, that it's almost like you've got a little bit of a feather in your cap. Like I live in Atlanta, but we also have this thing, you know, and you don't have that where you live and you know, Cleveland. Yeah, exactly. We'll I don't know. I don't even. I don't even know people. Yeah, it's from cool. Cleveland, we can insult Cleveland. It's fine. They, yeah, it's not Milwaukee, which we got to keep a good reputation with, we, so I can yeah, get that sponsorship. Exactly. And, We're gonna work on that. We're gonna ink that deal, man. But um, but yeah, man. And I, I just think your your career. I mean, you've you've come, you know, just up through some amazing people, and yeah, that's just that's just why. I mean, I I love like knowing enough of your story, but. You know, I just I just think hearing so much of it here, you know, in, in the podcast is is what I really wanted to to get through. And yeah. you know, the other thing that I wanted to mention as well, I mean, just speaking about the work that you've done, Chef, I mean like I mean, even just you know, you're getting a rising star nomination from James Beard. I mean, yeah, that, that that's crazy. Huge. That's huge, man. So yeah, you know, I mean I, I think, you know, whether you have a you know, a restaurant that, you know, is the vision that you have and people are walking through the front door or it's eat me, speak me at Gato or SOS Tiki Bar, I mean like the the work that you've done is um it's incredible man so yeah yeah it is i'm definitely proud of what of what's happened it's it's hard to go back and talk about accolades to a certain extent that's one of the hardest things about pitching people for investment too is like, yeah. you know actually valuing yourself enough in the pitch presentation without sounding cocky and arrogant but it's kind of like look at this you know long list of accolades we've gotten over all these years that it's you know has a value and a worth and 
it, it definitely feels good to get something like that where you know i don't really care necessarily about winning a james beard award it's never been a dream of mine per se um but it is cool when you wake up to a bunch of texts from people like holy shit you got this nomination you're like i did <laughs> they don't tell you anything i yeah. wasn't gonna check the list when that you know, i don't even know when that list comes out for long list yeah. stuff every year i got texts from other guys who were expecting it like steven satterfield and Sure. The guys from Kimball were texting me. It's like, uh, are you sure it's not a typo or something? <laughs> so yeah, it's it's crazy. Isn't it it's funny how like that. that side of the world works? Like that doesn't happen in like a regular job where it's like everyone. Yeah. What you wake up to text, everyone's like, "Did you hear you got a raise? Yeah, can, gee, congratulations! Congratulations, your HR guy, rising star of the month." <laughs> I didn't the even. Month. I didn't even know, and everybody else did. Like you do such a good job of telling people when they did stuff wrong at work. Wow. Yeah. Or maybe it actually works on the flip side, where everybody else knows that you got fired, but you yeah, don't yet. That Everyone's probably like, is. Oh, so bro, sorry, man. Sorry, man, dude. What yeah. happened? You're like, wait, what? I yeah, was. I just so that went, guy who's the rising HR star for you yeah. know James Beard Office Edition. He had to fire you, man. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That, this new show they're trying out and yeah you got voted off the island yeah or whatever. That's it. but oh man but but chef like you know as we're wrapping up here tell us i mean just like what's what's kind of next like on the menu here at sos like for eat me speak me for you like as much yeah. as you want to tell me man what's yeah, going on next well, for you? We'll, we'll be here indefinitely there's no end and time frame yet um I don't want to have to move the pop-up again. We just, it's a pain in the ass. It takes people a while to figure out where you are. I mean, it, even now people are still, where are you now? It's like, oh, uh, it's been a year and a, over a year, but we're at SOS. So <laughs> I don't know. How do I know? You can look, well, you can look at our Instagram, Google website, whatever, like, you know, the info, the hours is all there, but people get confused. So it's just kind of a pain to move. You're always yeah. slow for a little bit when you move to a new location. Yeah. I've done it enough where I know that now. Um, so I'd prefer to just stay here and hunker down. Hope we can get a little busier as time goes on. Um, but yeah, still trying to raise money for permanent restaurant, looking for you know, serious investors. And we have some money committed to it, but it's just not enough for me to feel comfortable proceeding. It's just very expensive to open a restaurant. So we're trying to do it the right way. I've passed on a lot of spaces. I've been turned down by investors i've turned down investors and everything in the middle trying to find the right deals with people do things on the right terms and find a space that can really be a permanent home for the future restaurant concept so that's always the end goal is still to to find that funding and open the place and and get it going but until then we'll we'll probably be here for a little while longer trying to do more uh, maybe once or twice a month doing little offsite stuff. We've been doing this taco night at Chrome, Chrome Yellow, Yellow yes. and, um, where yes. we send food. So if you ever want like random paninis in the middle of the day that we prepped, you can go to Chrome <laughs> Yellow and get them seven <laughs> days a week. Um, but yeah, we're trying to do maybe once a month or so do a taco Tuesday there and then another event per month, either at SOS or somewhere else, uh, on days that we don't have service either Sunday or Tuesday or something like that. Um, but yeah, we're just going to be rolling into summer produce, doing some fun stuff. We've got some crazy things with cantaloupes going on this week. So if you like cantaloupes and trying flavors that you didn't think that cantaloupes had, come on in and try it this week and <laughs> I don't know, next couple of weeks, at least through uh, the season. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Well, yeah. And we'll, we'll get a few, uh, investor letters out to Milwaukee. Yeah. We'll, we'll work on those. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. work on those. It'll be a, it'll be like a joint venture. Like 
a, a dual pitch for oh, yeah. podcast and a yeah, restaurant. Yeah, the podcast restaurant yeah. funding for sure. I would be more than happy to forego my plans for the wine list and cocktail program and all that stuff and serve exclusively High Life if they'll fund a restaurant That's for me. It. No like, problem. Yep. The, can I see your drink list? Like, it's only Miller High Life. Yep. You can have it in the can, the glass, or, yep. <laughs> every, or every, on draft in different sizes. Every format. Yeah, every format. formats. Yep. That's pretty much it. I think you've got something there, man. I think but, so, too. But, man, Jarrett, Stever, thank you so much for being on the show, man. It was a such pleasure. a pleasure. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So we'll, we'll, see you, we'll see you at SOS or Chrome Yellow or in Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. You got it. Congratulations, Jarrett. Six amazing years of Eat Me, Speak Me, and all that anyone can say is bravo. I'll personally miss every goat dish that I had a chance to enjoy off of your menus, but I'm very much looking forward to everything that is to come. So lastly, I'm sure you're all wondering why the hell I'm still talking now, but it has everything to do with a brand new podcast coming your way very soon. From none other than Mr. Jarrett Stieber. And it's called pause for dramatic effect, ticket stabbers. So Jared and many fine folks from the Atlanta restaurant community sit down to discuss service, the good, the bad, and the just plain weird. It's an amazing podcast for people who are in the industry. And for those of you who are not, it's an amazing peek behind the curtain. Again, it's one hell of a podcast and it's coming very soon. And right now you can follow the podcast on Instagram at at ticket stabbers for all of the news and when the first episode drops in just a few weeks. As always, thanks for listening to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stay hungry, 